This is a 1984 Flyer Die podcast. Podcast. I'm here with a special guest, somebody I consider to be my brother in arms. Uh, we are, um, I met him through a mutual friend. Shout out to my main man, Brian, who rocks out at uh, Brave New Worlds Comics in Old City. Got the name right in the first try. Thank you. Um, and so I um, met Phil through Brian and Instantly, I felt like, yo, this guy here is definitely like one of my own, you know? So it felt, it felt great to know like, yo, he's gonna be on the show. I said, yeah, man, my man Phil on the show. So I wanna introduce to you my main man, Phil Lay, who, is it Lay? I got pronounced it. Yeah, you got it right, oh, man. You got wow. it right, Two yeah, times. right off the bat. Yes, all right, twice. So um, my man Phil Lay, he is, um, a Sifu, which means teacher, right? Yep. Teacher of uh, Kung Fu, right? But it's a Southern style, and you have the name for it, sir? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a teacher in a Southern style called Guangzai Juklum, uh, which translates to Guangzai Providence, Bamboo Temple Forest, uh, and it's a Southern praying mantis style. So it's pretty obscure. Some people may know it, some people may not, but it is a southern style of kung fu, yes. So when you mentioned like praying mantis style, it's like I just always remember like the old school like Shaw films. Yeah. And just like the different positions they would have, like, you know, snake or like spider. Was it spider? It was I know one snake was one and it was mongoose was another. Yeah. And I think I may have seen like a mantis style here and there. Right. But that's dude, that's ill. That's just, even even just the concept and the idea of it just sounds so crazy to me, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, the first question is, how did you find yourself studying that discipline of martial arts? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I think with um, Guangzai Juk Lum specifically, so Southern Praying Mantis, um, it's a fairly rare style. I didn't really believe that it existed in our area, the Philadelphia area. Um, it is a Southern, uh, what they call a Hakka style. And Hakka meaning that Hakka, the Hakka were a Southern Chinese people. And they are an ethnicity that has very specific cultural um, practices involving um, Kung Fu being one. And what is renowned with Hakka styles is that it is a more of a close quarter combat style uh, relies a lot on touching and feeling, um, on reaction time and developing that reaction time. Um, and again, you know, that, that's a style that I didn't think that, that was, um, available to us in the Philadelphia area. Um, having said that, how did I originally get into martial arts? Um, 
you know, I was born in the United States. I didn't have a lot of interaction with my extended family from Vietnam, but um, my mom would tell me stories, right? So um, my mom would tell me stories about my grandfather um, who was a Kung Fu practitioner. And he was a Kung Fu practitioner for the majority of his life in a family style that we generically call Valam. And Valam literally means uh, like forest art, forest martial art. And uh, my family is from a, the southwest part of Vietnam, um, fairly close to um, Cambodia. And uh, my grandfather was a practitioner in our village style of Valam. And so, you know, I grew to um, really appreciate these stories. They connected me to a world that I didn't know. Um, my grandfather ended up fighting in the Vietnam War with the Americans, um, with the United States. You know, he was a sergeant. Uh, he worked pushing back against the North Vietnamese in the, uh, the Civil War of Vietnam. And, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't ever get to meet him. Um, but through these stories, uh, through this notion that, you know, you, you have a grandfather um, who kept alive this art despite the fact that there was this war that involved guns, involved things that didn't really require martial arts the way that we understood it. Um, it you know, it's inspiring to you. You know, you're like, oh, wow, there's this man that's kept up this cultural thing. Um, and, and in that, I, you know, pursued martial arts in general of all different kinds. You know, I've, I have a background in, um, in boxing. I've done Muay Thai. I've done MMA. Um, I've done a little bit of capoeira. But I keep returning to Kung Fu because I think Kung Fu culturally um, is something that I identify with from, you know, my family. See, growing up, you know, my exposure to martial arts came from the movies that I saw. And my father, like, he used to have these uh, movies on Betamax. All right. So, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. The only, the only martial arts films that I can remember him having on tape belonged, like, were Bruce Lee movies. Right. That was it. So that's all I knew about, right? But I didn't leave, you know, they had like what, uh, Chuck Norris stuff. I mean, nah, it didn't count to me. Like it was just Bruce Lee and that's all it was. And he right. used to tell me about how amazing Bruce was. Right. You know, cause my dad had um, his book, the, I think it was called The Tao, Jeet Kune Do. And Absolutely, man. Everybody needs to have that. Yo, he yeah. still has it in his house. I need to borrow it from him again. Yeah. So, um, you know, he had, had the book and he just spoke greatly about him. And so my understanding of martial arts was never the stereotypical, yeah, kick, kick, punch, punch, and the loud screams that people would do, mm -hmm. thinking that that was like martial arts. Mm -hmm. To me, it was always an art. It was always mystified me. Yeah. Which is why, like, when I was, a, you know, when I was a kid, my cousins and I would just get lost in playing Street Fighter. Yeah. I feel you, man. You know, I know exactly what you're talking about. So it was like our that was our connection to it. Yep. Again, we weren't like outside trying to like fight everybody or you know just go above and beyond. We always saw it as something that was special. Right. So 
one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show because I wanted to understand how martial arts as an art can be beneficial to anyone in their everyday lives. Mm-hmm. You know, because I mean, yeah, you see, like, of course, people see it all in the movies. It's just action, action, action. But I feel like there's an actual practical application to our everyday lives. I know um, that you mentioned that, uh, it's maybe been off before we start recording, but how Kung Fu and martial arts is, like, designed as a form of resistance. Right. In a way. Yep. So how has it helped you in terms of how you view the world, your interactions with other people, and even in terms of like finding things out there that are totally against what you believe in. Yeah, absolutely, man. You know, I think there's there's two two um, ways that I think about it. And one, it is a cultural practice that connects me to a past and a history that um, I think is obfuscated in the what we call the Western world, right? Mm-hmm. And that is like my connection to my grandfather, like I said, that is connection to certain values that we will get into as we continue um, that is available to you if you are a Kung Fu practitioner. So that's the one. I think that's the personal thing. The other thing is that, you know, I don't think that a lot of people recognize this, but Kung Fu as a practice, um, whether it be in mythology and lore, all the way up to modern media with Bruce Lee, all the way up to the things that we're watching today, it has been a mechanism of, it has been a cultural mechanism in allowing people, um, especially people of, you know, South Asian uh, descent. And when I say South Asian descent, I mean from India all the way over to, you know, Vietnam. Um, And obviously in areas like Japan and China and and Korea. Um, But it has been this mechanism that has allowed us to explore ways of resistance. And what do I mean by that? If we go all the way back to these stories of Shaolin, right? Shaolin are these monks, these warrior monks that existed in China that have um, imported Buddhist practices from India. Shaolin monks, uh, the mythology of Shaolin monks is that they trained in um, Indian Buddhist breathing techniques, to allow themselves to build the endurance to meditate better. And as history goes on, these monks had to deal with resistance from bandits, from robbers, but also from the government. And they would practice up these arts, these combative arts, in a spiritual way that would allow them to stand um, for the people. And again, this is all mythology, right? This is all a part of the lore of Kung Fu. You fast forward to essentially what is the, the Qing Dynasty. So essentially, um, you know, this is when a, an outside force uh, comes into China and uh, essentially creates up a, a dictatorship that... Um, the the former dynasty, the Ming dynasty, are, are are not so into, right? So here's where you start developing stories 
uh, which Juklam takes part in, and that is that you have these revolutionary martial artists who hide out in temples, who hide out in the red boat opera houses, who, who obfuscate their martial arts practices so that they can one day rise up against the Qing dynasty and restore the rightful, rightful, um, rightful dynasty. So even in that, you, you've, you've replicated this notion of resistance. And then obviously, come the 19th century, colonizing powers come through, and this is where you know, the opium wars, this is where the tea trade occurs, and you know, we, we, can, we can get into that, and that's a whole podcast on its own, but what happens is that these, these Western colonizing powers come in. And so martial arts at that point becomes a big part of cultural identity and nationalism. So if you look back to a lot of these different martial arts, you'll see that a lot of these martial arts have some sense of story revolving around resisting against colonizing powers. So for instance, um, Wing Chun. Wing Chun is a Southern Chinese martial art that, uh, you know, the one lore is that it is a martial art designed by a woman to allow uh, the least amount of effort for the largest amount of outcome. However, if you look deeply into other parts of the mythology, Wing Chun is designed as a martial art to resist against uh, colonizing powers, both internally and externally. And I think this will tie into a lot of the films that we're going to talk about. Um, Guangzai Juklum is a similar thing. Guangzai Juklum, Southern Praying Mantis, you know, there is the more romanticized uh, myth that says that, you know, a monk, Samdat, um, developed this art by watching a praying mantis fend off a larger creature, and from there developed this really highly refined martial art. The other mythos is that the Ming Dynasty warriors wanted to hide and obfuscate the martial art and call it praying mantis so that other people wouldn't understand that this was an art developed for resistance. Um, you fast forward a little bit, and I know you've, you've probably heard of the Chinese you know, Boxer Rebellion. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And so this was a time when, you know, colonists were fighting, they were trying to control territories and things like that. And so what happened was a lot of martial artists got together and said, hey, if we, if we aggregate all of our efforts, if we push all of our efforts together, and, you know, there's a lot of folklore involved and things like that, but if we, if we use this art, this collective martial art, which compromises a lot of different styles, we can resist against colonizing powers. Obviously, that didn't end well, but that does take us to then, you know, we're talking about Bruce Lee, we're talking about martial arts films, and we get to a point where these films, like Bruce Lee, which have inspired so many people, inspired me, is now a contemporary version of that story. Where, you know, if we take a look at Fist of Fury, if we take a look at a Chinese connection, this is the story of a man who returns home to his school and unveils that through colonization, through oppressing powers, not only has his teacher been betrayed and, and uh, essentially like taken off the board, but there are these larger picture initiatives in which 
he has to do everything that, everything that he can to resist and push back through his will, through his training, through his determination to assert that, hey, I'm here, my people are here, and we matter. So that's a long roundabout way of saying you know, martial arts from the beginning has been about um, self-development, has been about resisting against those things that are trying to encroach upon us, and it has existed from the earliest parts of Kung Fu lore all the way to contemporary times. Before that you mentioned, um, like, in terms of resistance, and look at Bruce Lee's films. Now, there were four films he made before he passed away. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me get this right off the top of my head. Okay, you had um, Into the Dragon, which is like, I guess, his first and last U.S. release. I don't really count Game of, Game of Death. Well, I only count if you talk about his original Game of Death. Right, right, right. That's because you know. Yeah. I just, <laughs> you cut out his picture and pull in the mirror and have a guy sit behind exactly. it. It's just yeah. horrible. It doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't. So you have, so you have um, Into the Dragon, um, which in a way, he was, he was still like fighting back against something, resisting against something, mm-hmm. corruption within, you know, I guess... It was corruption within, um, I want to say, not just martial arts, but Mr. Uh, what was this guy's name? Uh, uh, Han. Right? Han. Yeah, yeah, Han was like definitely like the like the corrupt antagonist. But I really, I don't know if I can really call him a colonial, like you know, colonialist or colonizer or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was similar. But I feel like Chinese Connection most definitely had that, and I felt like. Uh, Return of the Dragon yeah. had that. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I mean, you know, a, a lot of people will say that I'm reading too much into it, right? But, mm-hmm. like, his first film called The Big Boss yep. was about this little guy fighting against the big boss that was exploiting all of the workers and exploiting all of the people so that he could gain something out of it, right? right. So the big boss was utilizing capitalism and uh, extortionism and exploitation to, to, to get the little guy. Right. So that was the big boss, which in the United States, you know, we call Fist of Fury. And that's how I saw it. Now with the Chinese Connection, um, which uh, it's called the Chinese Connection in the United States, but it was called Fist of Fury in China. Right. Um, the Chinese Connection Fist of Fury was essentially about these colonizing powers, both Western and at the time Japanese, because this was very shortly after, you know, uh, World War II and the impacts associated with uh, Japanese imperialism, um, dealt with that on a, a, a scale that was influencing Asia. So this became, whereas the big boss was more of a localized story, mm-hmm. um, the Chinese connection Fist of Fury was a little bit more multinational, right? Especially in the Asian communities. And then you have Way of the Dragon, which Way of the Dragon is a story where Bruce Lee's character goes to Italy and now is an immigrant, is a Chinese immigrant existing in a Western world. So in that sense, this story now is about what it's like to be an Asian individual in an Asian community in a Western world and the different types of influences and impact that's associated therein. 
And then how I see Enter the Dragon falling in is now that you've taken it on a more international scale. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, everybody had called it like Bruce Lee's James Bond, right? He's a secret agent working for the United States, and he can infiltrate in, and he can he can infiltrate Han's island and essentially fight international corruption. So there's like a lot of Cold War politics that kind of play into that. But I think, you know, each of these things attempt, each of his films attempt to address this notion of otherness in various scales, whether it be localized, more within the, the uh, you know, for him, the Chinese community and how it plays internationally, how the Chinese community exists um, externally into the Western world. And then how it exists on a global scale, and that's that's kind of how I see it. And also, for nerd moment, of course. Yeah. For those who may not know, where the dragon and return the dragon, are, it's the same it's movie. The same movie. But, but you know, yeah. over here, return over there is where the dragon. Exactly. And I tend to go with like the with their version of the titles because it it's, it sound better. Yeah. Because yeah. like return the dragon, I guess they put that out after Instant Dragon came out in the states, maybe. I actually don't recall that, but like I know that by the time that The Way of the Dragon came out, mm-hmm. Bruce Lee had a uh, had a persona, right? So right. it was like, oh yeah, he's coming back. So like it was like it was probably uh, trying okay. to capitalize off of that. But yes, you're absolutely right. In um, the Western markets, it was Return of the Dragon. Mm-hmm. You know that whole sequel kind of like notion. I I think. Yeah. And then with. Um, in, in other countries internationally, specifically in China, Hong Kong, you know, um, Vietnam, where like my, my parents saw it, it was uh, the way of the dragon. Yeah. And I felt like the way of the dragon, like even how the films were cut, because there were some things in the way of the dragon that were cut from uh, Return of the Dragon. Yeah, yeah. Primarily, like the scenes of like, of him being intimate with the, one girl that he met at the at the fountain. Yep. Because in Way of the Dragon, I'm like, okay, I'm like, whoa, I didn't see this, and I don't know why it was cut out in Return of the Dragon. I mean, I have my theories of why. Yeah, you know. yeah. I mean, uh, you know, be, you know, for the audience, you know, between us friends, I think that's a part of like um, the white gaze. You know, it's 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 designed for how um, white Western audiences might see things. So. Right. You know what I mean? So, you know, you have this, um, I think we're talking about the same scene, right? They're, they're at the fountain and it's like him kind of flirting with the, the Italian, Italian woman, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was cut out because for that reason, you know? And I, I think this bleeds into our conversation earlier about how um, it's difficult, even within martial arts, you know, the, the notion that these this point of view or this practice um, it gets it, it gets analyzed through a, a white lens and so you know it, it has to get scrubbed that way so Jesus but like it's just, it's, just, it's just crazy to see that like even him being like the star Right? right, even as widely you know accepted as he was, because he was teaching people like James Garner or like you know um, who's the one guy, Steve McQueen. Like right, he was he was loved in Hollywood. Yeah, but he was only loved through a certain 
limit. Like even in terms of the show, um, was like the Kung Fu the Legend or the Legend of Kung Fu that David Carradine yeah, yeah. wanted to get in the role. It's is just it's this thing that you know early on like you can be a celebrity of color, you can get to a certain point, but it won't let you go all the way. Right, right. And I mean that's that's exactly it, right? Like so he he was a co star on the Green Hornet, um, and then was gunning for this kung fu series. Um it went to David Carradine because he was seen as a little too oriental, which is not a word that we would use to describe uh, people of Asian descent today. But, you know, back then he was considered a little too or- oriental. And so he made his way over in um, over in Asia. You know, he went back to Hong Kong and he, he decided that he wanted to be a specific hero for a specific people. You know, I, I think... He built relationships with Jim Kelly, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yeah, we talk about Steve McQueen and things like that, but I think, um, you know, he, 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 he became a champion for... Uh, he became a champion, and then he made Kung Fu a, a champion practice, I think, for all people of color, because at the time... Um, it was unique. He he hit box offices and people loved him. And we didn't have that type of representation for people of color at the time, you know? And I think, you know, with things like uh, the Wu-Tang Clan and, you know, how that became a big phenomenon, like that's all inspired by these Kung Fu films. And I think there is this congruency between Bruce Lee kung fu films and the civil rights movement that was happening here in the united states you know it's like some things are meant for us you know what i mean and then so you know when i look through the lens of kung fu you know people are like why are you so passionate about kung fu you know you look at ufc today you look at what's popular and it's the quote unquote things that work um, why are you so interested in Kung Fu? And, you know, I can I could spend several days talking about um, the difference between what works and and what we perceive as entertainment and what works and what's perceived as an art and what works and what's perceived as a sport. I can get into all of that, and we don't have to get into that today. Um, but, you know, I think kung fu as a practice as a cultural practice and i think is rooted it, it has dna rooted in resistance um bruce lee knew what he was doing he used that as a, a as a fulcrum to tell these narratives of um resisting against different types of powers and i, I think in the west here some of us picked up on that it spreads the idea of resistance, you know, wanting liberation or various kinds of freedoms, it spreads. It is a contagion in mm-hmm. a way. And it scares people. Which is what I loved earlier, before we, again, before we got on the microphone and start recording, <laughs> you made a great comparison between one of Bruce Lee's films, Chinese Connection, and the current hit now, mm-hmm. 
in the hit I'm talking about, the number one movie in the world at the time of this recording, Marvel's Black Panther. Two films that are both about resisting, mm-hmm. but in different ways. There's Chinese connection where you have, you know, he's fighting against colonialism, imperialism, you know, fighting against there's the Japanese he's fighting against, and I believe was the other individual Russian. Yeah, I mean, he's always... The the thing about, I think, kung fu films is that when it comes to um, enemies, mm-hmm. um, a lot of times it's portrayed against the Japanese because, you know, it, again, it was fresh after World War II and the Japanese imperialism. And so there's a lot of stereotyping that happens there. And then in terms of Western powers, um, it can be between the Russians, the English. Um, it was less the English with Hong Kong films because... Hong Kong was a uh, British colony. So a lot of times they, they would brush it off as like Russian, right? right. But it, it stood in for a, a Western white power. And we took that down to Black Panther, where the resistance was internal and external. So much you mentioned earlier. Absolutely. Internal in terms of Yes, you have T'Challa and you have Eric Killmonger. Yeah. Um, and their characters are very layered, which is what I love most about the film. Absolutely. And, I, and, and you know, I think what a lot of people... Um, no, okay. Uh, I'm going to take a step back. I think what a lot of privileged people miss about the film is that it's juxtaposing those two things to showcase how complicated things are. Yes. Yeah. You know, I I mean, growing up, Mike, I had, I was very lucky. In terms of um, representation, yes, in mainstream American culture, I didn't have a lot of it, but my access to Hong Kong films, and still, they weren't Vietnamese, but I could associate myself to a, a Asian heroes, right? You have heroes like Wang Feihong. Wang Feihong was a, a very popular folk hero who existed in the 19th century. And, you know, a lot of these films, Jet Li plays Wang Feihong a lot. He is a character who stands up for righteousness and fights against colonialism and fights against the internal oppression by the government. And he is able to make hard decisions and champion for the weaker people, right? You have um, Jet Li's film that came out here in the United States, Fearless. Yes. Uh, who, you know, he played Ho Yunja. And Ho Yunja is a real character in Chinese history who was a practitioner of Northern Kung Fu. He created a feder- federation called Jingwu, who, um, you know, was able to aggregate all of these different arts to propagate and and strengthen the no- notion of cultural identity for the Chinese people. And, you know, historically, he fought against a wrestler, and he won. He fought against a boxer, and he won. And so these, these characters are made into these films that we watch, which, by the way, Chinese Connection, Fist of Fury, uh, Bruce Lee plays Chen Zhen, who is supposedly a student of Ho Yunja. 
So it all ties together, right? We have me being an Asian man. I was lucky enough to grow up with these heroes who pushed back against internal oppressive governments and also the uh, oppressive, the, 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 this notion of an, imp- of an oppressive, imperialistic, colonialistic uh, power. In the United States, that's fairly non-existent. I would say prior to, to Black Panther. Now, you know, you have all of these different films that do exist, uh, independent films and some mainstream films that try to push this. But in terms of the scale of a hero um, that, can, that can show that, you know, they are pushing back against um, these type of uh, oppressive systematic organizations, I mean... Black Panther, you know, attempts to challenge it. And I think, again, um, a lot of privileged individuals, and when I say privileged, I mean, you know, obviously white, um, miss the point of the the dualism between T'Challa and Killmonger. See, for... So, look, I saw the movie twice so far, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go see it again this week. First time I saw it with my parents, I watched it all the way through. Loved it. Second time I watched it, loved it again. But it struck me emotionally. It struck me spiritually as well, but that didn't happen until a few days later. Right. Because there was, you know, spoiler alert, listen, by the time this comes out, you should have seen it by now. I don't care, right? getting down to the meat and potatoes and everything. There is a guilt that T'Challa has. Mm -hmm. Because Eric Killmonger, who goes by Eric Stevens, is his cousin. Right. His first cousin. Right. They knew nothing about until the turmoil that was brought to Wakanda. Correct. Right? Yep. T'Challa, to me... He reminds me of, in a way, not all the way, like not to the extreme, but he kind of reminds me of Michael Corleone mm-hmm. from The Godfather. Because once his father, you know, gets, once he gets shot and gets ill and mostly passes away, he's thrust into, being, into becoming the head of the family. Mm-hmm. With the child, there's a scene where he tells his father, once he speaks to him in the ancestral plane. Yeah that he wasn't ready to be without him. Right. Meaning to say that he wasn't, he didn't feel like he was ready to become the king right. of Wakanda yet. Yep. So he had to deal with all these challenges, you know, fighting M'Baku, which I thought was great, because, yeah. you know, I've learned that a great king knows when to show mercy. Right. He did that with M'Baku, and that was eventually paid back down the line. But he found himself caught off guard when he saw his grandfather's ring worn around the neck of this, of this assailant who was wearing this African mask who rode mm-hmm. away after um, they broke uh, Ulysses' claw out of jail. Right. Right. And I know T'Challa made, had gave uh, one of his, um, not his friend, one of his, not really supporters, but one of his generals, 
He said, I gave you my word that I will bring back Claw. Mm-hmm. And when he couldn't deliver, which was no fault of his own because, you know, Killmonger had intervened. Right. He was seen as either weak or someone who couldn't get the job done mm-hmm. by this individual. Mm-hmm. So when uh, Killmonger came and brought the body of Claw to, um, to Wakanda, he was seen as, yes, this guy gets the job done. Right. He handles everything. But I, I didn't... Here's the thing. When they had that... When they had that conversation between him and the other character, whose name was... Forget his, I guess, like, escaped me at the moment. He said that he would bring him back. But T'Challa always had compassion. Mm-hmm. The other guy wanted vengeance. Mm-hmm. Hella hot water death. Mm-hmm. He wanted him to pay. T'Challa wanted to do things the quote-unquote right way. Right. But bringing him back, you know, to Wakanda, you know, to guess to face whatever council or court system that they had right. and do it that way. Right. You know, so... Yeah, Mike, and I think that's the challenge, right? Because, mm-hmm. like, you know, a lot of my... They're, they're, they're typically, you know, and I, I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of flack for this, but a lot of the people that come to me and, and talk to me about how, you know, Killmonger uh, is the true hero and, you know, w- why wasn't he given the opportunity in this film to arm, um, you know, blacks across the world? Um, you know, I understand, and this is where it's tricky for me, right? Because, like, I think um, absolutely, absolutely, I get it. I get it. I'm like, I'm angry a lot of the time because, you know, and, and as a, as an Asian American man, I have it relatively easy. I have it relatively easy, but even then I'm angry. So I can't even imagine the anger of, of, uh, being oppressed, you know, in, in a way that, um, you know, killmonger, or let's just be honest, blacks in America, are oppressed. And um, so I understand that. But I think what people are missing, and, and you, you get to the crux of it, it's, it's, not, it's not black or white in that sense. In the, in the sense that, like, Killmonger is angry, his father was upset, and their motives were right. T'Challa has uh, also positive motives. He wants to protect his people. He wants, you know, this is the one safe hold for 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 people with black skin to 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 not have to deal with the oppressive nature of white supremacy what people who typically are white males don't get when they say oh this film sucks because killmonger should have had the opportunity to resist against everything it's that the enemy here is white supremacy you know the entire film is it doesn't it it doesn't give a shit about what, and to quote the film, colonizers think. It is about the turmoil of people who, Killmonger, for instance, Eric Killmonger, Eric Stevens, was raised in a world in which he had to cope with white supremacy every day of his life. And that makes something out of someone. And then you have T'Challa, who was raised 
in a in a lens where it was like, hey, I have to look out for me and my people because if we step outside too much, this this monstrosity that is white supremacy will steamroll over us. And people look at that as a weakness. And I ask people, you know, do you know what it's like to want to have to protect yourself and people like you? You know, we look back into um, the Vietnam War. And the Vietnam War was a civil war between northern Vietnam and southern Vietnam. And, and, and what spurred that on was the resistance against French colonialism. Obviously, there are a lot of other things into play, but Vietnam was a French colonized country that now wanted to go out on its own and declare independence. What happened? A civil war broke out. You know, there were different notions about how Vietnam could actualize itself. And then ultimately, the United States assassinated the southern Vietnamese president, Ngo Dinh Yim, and established themselves as a power to then handle the war. And so you, you talk about, you know, the film. And again, being an Asian American male, you know, I'm hesitant to, to, to want to speak about this impact for, for, for um, people in general, but especially for blacks in the United States. You know, as a person of color, I watched the film and I wanted to cry because for once, like watching a Hong Kong film, this was a movie in which it didn't give a shit about what white people thought, right? Sure, you can say that it is a Disney film and it is a Marvel film and therefore, you know, they wanted it to be marketable to some extent to the, to the white community. But Mike, I, I watched it um, last Friday and it was a celebratory moment in which I felt, yes, this is a movie that goes out of its way to not only represent blacks, but also extend itself to other people that understand that, you know, what it's like to be oppressed. And I don't want to claim the film as mine. But I think for me, it does for me what Kung Fu films did for the African-American community in the United States in the 70s. You know, um, again, there is a reason why the Wu-Tang Clan is popular. There is a reason for why, um, you know, Bruce Lee was popular. There is a reason for why, um, you know, I, and again, I, you know, I have sitting next to me, it's, it's this piece about black audiences, black exploitation, um, kung fu films, and the challenges to white masculinity. And the piece talks about how if it wasn't for the African-American community in the United States in the 1970s into the 80s, kung fu cinema probably wouldn't be as proliferated as it was today in the United States. And it's because we're all grasping for, for heroes. We're grasping for representation. So... You know, you bring up Killmonger, you bring up T'Challa, and both have different aspects trying to achieve the same thing um, or similar things. And I get it. I, I, I get the, the notion of, you know, Killmonger being the hero. I get the notion of Killmonger, you know, wanting to utilize violence as a tool to, to gain independence. 
Um, what I challenge, what I challenge white audiences about that, however, is what they're asking for is a vision in which black and brown bodies are suffering to fight against white supremacy, which they have, they have influence over. So I don't know if that's, you know, I don't know if that's too antagonistic to say on your podcast, but, you no, know. it's not. It's actually right up, the, right up my alley because, look, I come from your perspective as being an Asian man in America, right? From my perspective being a, being a black man in America and watching this film, it was, I felt tied, connected to both. More so towards T'Challa than Killmonger. I don't really see Killmonger as a hero because he was, his entire ambition was fueled by anger, frustration, and hatred. Because he, he reminded me of the fatherless children mm-hmm. who were upset that their father wasn't there for them when they needed him, you know? So it's the idea of, you know, like no child left behind. He was a child that was left behind. Absolutely, man. So he had to fend for himself to go from, you know, becoming, you know, because in the comics, you know, he, he was like an MIT guy, you know, you know just smart as hell. And this mm-hmm. film, you know, he goes through the ranks of like the naval, Navy SEAL, and he's just... He's strong. He can fight. He, you know, he's sharp. He's, you know, he knows about his culture. Mm-hmm. But it's that thing that's on his shoulder about his, fa- his father being taken away from him, him being left there. And you know, there's a scene because I want to go into a different direction. Well, on the same topic, but go into his interactions with, uh, you know, uh, the father and. T'Challa's father, T'Chaka, and uh, Killmonger's father. Mm-hmm. I'm, I want to touch, that, touch on that too. Absolutely, me too. But yeah. there was a thing that when Killmonger became the Golden Jaguar, right? Mm-hmm. That's what, that was the name of his, of his outfit, was the Golden Jaguar. Yep. Um, when he became that, he went to the ancestral place too. But where he went to wasn't like the beautiful place that T'Challa went to. Right. It wasn't to the it wasn't to the same same apartment where his father was killed. Right. You didn't see his father there, he found his stuff. Next thing you know, his father says, I told you about going through my things. That was conversation. Right. And it was a, it was a scene that I think about. And the scene was T'Challa, not T'Challa, the father, in Jabu, I think his name was. Mm-hmm. He talks to him, he asks him, he said, No tears for me. And the son says to him, everybody dies around here. Mm-hmm. It was a commonplace thing. Mm-hmm. And that hurt his father. Mm-hmm. And they both were discussing, like, feeling like, you know, we're, we're lost, but we're right here. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been abandoned. And the son is, can't really see through his anger frustration. Mm-hmm. But the spirit of his father knew that he had made a mistake. Absolutely. You know, in terms of, like, his approach to everything. He said, well, you know, we've, we're, we're lost because of what we did, you know? And, you know, he said he should have took, taken his son back 
to Wakanda when he had a chance to, right. you know. And, you know, I, I see, I saw that, and I connected with Killmonger on that level. Not with, you know, once he got back to Wakanda, him being power-hungry and abusing people and burning things down. You know, he, he wasn't thinking clearly. No, but I get that, too. I right. get that anger. You know, like we, we've talked about this offline. Like, I get that anger. You know, the scene that you just brought up was so powerful because I think um, what, you know, privileged audiences see, um, and again, I'm, I'm using that word because I'm, I'm softening the blow. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot of, it's a lot of, again, white males that I'm talking to. What they see is they, they watch this film and they say it's a disservice because um, Killmonger was the real hero. And the scene that you described, I think that at the end of the day, all of the main characters are the heroes. And to some degree, T'Challa and Killmonger uh, both have flaws, right? And those flaws are due to, again, white supremacy. Now, you have Killmonger who, you know, Eric, he's talking there with his father, and he says, everybody dies. And that's because he's existing in a condition, in a world where he is being oppressed, and people like him die. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's happening in the real world today, you know? Um, that's happening in the United States. That's happening with these, you know, police shootings. It's, that, it's, it's, it's the whole juxtaposition of Black Lives Matter. Now, you have T'Challa, who, again, he's naive. He wants to be an, uh, an isolated He wants Wakanda to be an isolated country. And he, he essentially, Nakia calls him out on it. And she's like, you're turning your back on, like, people around the world. I've seen suffering, right? And he is a tragic hero in that sense because he is also suffering from white supremacy. White supremacy is so powerful that he's like, hey, I, I want to protect my people. I want to protect what I'm able to protect. And Killmonger is living in a world dominated by white supremacy where he says, hey, everybody dies. And if everybody dies, why not empower ourselves to make sure that, you know, we have some control on who dies? And so what I'm trying to, to suss out for myself is that things aren't black and white. And you have T'Challa and you have Killmonger and they are, they, you know, you have, you know, you, you, you have one, one side that is one extreme. You have the other side that's the other extreme. Now, we haven't talked about Nakia, but I think she's the one that she's like, hey, I've been out in the world. I'm willing to use violence to help people. I'm willing to use education to help people. I'm willing to use, you know, um, uh, she, she wants Wakanda to open up and accept refugees. She sees the whole board and she's willing to use all of the tools. Now, Killmonger just purely wants to use violence. And, that, and that, that's compelling in, in some sense. And then you have um, T'Challa who just wants to use this isolationalism which is compelling in some sense, right? You know what it reminds me of? Two things. One thing I just picked up on just now. Do you know the significance between Wakanda and Oakland? Mm-hmm. Wakanda has the Black Panther, right? Mm -hmm. Like the Black Panther. Right. Oakland has where has 
legacy of the Black the Panther. The Black Panther as we know it in the real world, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our version of it. Yeah. So you kind of see, you see a more militarized version of the Panthers within Killmonger mm-hmm. versus this Black Panther of Wakanda. Mm-hmm. Like, both are fighters. Both are... Both want goodness for their people, but the extremity of Killmonger exactly. is in a, you know, completely adverse to what T- T'Challa is. And, and, he, and T'Challa's an extreme too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Killmonger's willing to kill his girlfriend to, yeah, to, to, to get to what he wants. Right. And T'Challa is willing to turn his back on people in need to protect his people, right? And that's where I think, um, again, um, you know, I keep turning back to Nakia because she's, she's saying, hey, it's more nuanced than that. It's both. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you, know <laughs> you invited me on here to talk about Kung Fu and Kung Fu films. And, you know, I think this is where it ties back into it, right? Um, you know, people ask, what makes Kung Fu Kung Fu? Why is Kung Fu different than other martial arts? And traditionally, Kung Fu deals with three things, and that is Kung Fa, Ling Fa, Da Fa. And Kung Fa, Kung means work, and Kung is like the conditioning that you put into to, to master yourself and master your conditioning. Ling Fa, Ling Fa is the ability to train, and so that's a lot of like the form work, the artistry, the precision. And dafa, dafa is the notion of like being able to apply this into a fighting component. And you see, fighting is one third of kung fu. Training your constitution, which is kung fa, is another. Ling fa, which is refining yourself, is the, the last third, right? And you need all three of those things because if you just do dafa. All you're doing is training your fighting techniques and there's no artistry and there's no spirituality to it. If all you're doing is gong fa, all you're doing is making yourself a stronger human being, you're hitting the weights, you're, 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 you're jumping rope and you're, and you're running, but you're not, you're not developing the artistry or the applicability of it. And if all you do is ling fa, all you're doing is forms, which Kung Fu is known for, right? right? Which is very beautiful, very articulate, very cultural, but has no applicability and doesn't strengthen your constitution. So Kung Fu requires all three of those things. And I think when we're looking at, like, you and I personally, you know, for the audience, just you and me as friends, and we're, we're males, you're a black male, I'm a, a, I'm a Vietnamese male in the United States here. Um, for me, it's very easy for me to get angry and say, you know, we're not doing enough. Like, you know, if you've read any of my writings, it's like I, I am an angry individual because, um, A, I feel like I'm invisible, and B, I feel like we don't care enough, we acquiesce. And so what do I want to do? And so, of course, I could apply DAFA to that. I can apply this fighting ability. I can, I can want to resist and, and really push back in a very confrontational way. Or I can also approach it from, uh, from a sense of, of healing, a sense of development. And I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. Now, it's easier for me to say, I know the intersectionality of everything is very, very difficult, right? Um, but I, I really truly believe that it is a bit, a bit of everything. You know, as people of color, whenever we apply any type of uh, 
resistance that deals with um, physical antagonization, whether it be, um, you know, what they call rioting, but, you know, we're protesting or, or whatever, um, it, it is always seen as something that needs to be squashed. And I, I completely, obviously, you know, I, I disagree with that. You know, you have on Wednesday was the anniversary of the Japanese internment camps. You know, and just because these individuals were Japanese living in the United States, they were put into internment camps because, hey, they may have aligned with uh, Imperial Japan during World War II. And then, you know, we talk about, like, um, what the Native Americans have had to deal with. And, you know, the, the Battle of Wounded Knee was not a battle, right? Um, y- you have all of these things where we... we confrontation and violence is thrusted upon us and people expect us to 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 either acquiesce or if we're violent in some sort of nature we need to be contained and i think where kung fu helps me on a personal level is that i know that i can train and 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 of course kung fu kung fu's applicability in today's world um in in a in in a physical confrontational sense may not be, you know, I'm not going to go out in the street and assume that my Kung Fu is going to protect me from a gunfight. Right. But what it does allow me to do is it allows me to train myself with intent from, uh, from an, from a notion of physical resistance of, uh, of, of physical hardening and spiritual constitution. And I think those things I saw and it resonated me with Black Panther and I think that people, you know, just miss out on. There are a lot of emotions that I that I felt while watching and that I feel what I feel now as you were speaking about a way of like of dealing. So for me, you know, that's one of the things one of the reasons why I, you know, I, I, I admire Kung Fu because of the training that goes into it, not just physical. There's all types of constitutions that go into it. Mm-hmm. Make sure, make sure all, all of you, all of your parts, physical, mental, spiritual, are in proper alignment, right? So, you know, there was a scene that caused me to be quite emotional in the movie. And that was watching T'Challa have to kill Killmonger. Mm-hmm. That was his cousin. Mm-hmm. And the moment I saw T'Challa's eyes water, what after it happened, mine did too. Mm-hmm. Because I, here's the thing: the first time T'Challa and Killmonger fight, T'Challa loses. But I feel like T'Challa lost going into it, he was losing going into it because he didn't want to bring harm to Killmonger. Killmonger wanted, wanted to kill T'Challa. Mm-hmm. You know, he thought he did initially. Because there was, there was a bit of guilt there. Right. Because he didn't know he had a cousin and he didn't understand his story. And then when he goes to the ancestral plane again and talks to his father, he says, why didn't you tell me? Right. And then he then he tells him and said, Your way was wrong. Yep. Your way was wrong. And I think that was how he was able to beat his cousin. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, they had their flaws, 
But once you start opening up and understanding Killmonger's point of view a bit and like being empathetic to his uh, to his his, his pain, mm-hmm. he was able to understand him more. Right. You know. So again, for me, sitting there, I felt at a, I felt at a, at a loss of words because I'm seeing something that happens here all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, like when we see when we battle each other about who's right or who's wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, like in terms of whose level of blackness is, especially on my end, whose level of blackness is more legitimate. Right. Right? Or who is all about who, who's more right and who's, who's more wrong about, you know, the black story or the, the black struggle. And I just, it, it, it hurt me to see that that's what it comes down to is a lot of us sometimes we, we, we're like we're killing each other, not physically, right? But in terms of we're killing each other, just just to make a point. Yep. You know that's what when Killmonger was going after T'Challa, he may have something. It may have been personal, but it was more so about him proving a point. Absolutely, man. You know, absolutely. So, I feel you. It's just it's, it's a lot that was there because it reminded me of. Malcolm versus Martin, mm-hmm. you know, but it wasn't until Malcolm went on his pilgrimage to Mecca that he realized, like, yo, we're all, we're all one and the same, because mm-hmm. he came from Nation of Islam, and, you know, not to start any fights, nothing like that, but they were just, like, black only, you know, they had no time for the quote-unquote blue-eyed white devils, you know right. what I mean, it was right. just this, but once he went away... To Mecca, and he saw there were people who were practicing his faith of all ethnic backgrounds. It gave him a greater perspective. Right. It allowed him to be more of a well-rounded person. Mm-hmm. You know, allowed him to be more civil towards um, Martin Luther King, or someone who he once would always like chastise for his ways. You know, what I mean, like almost like saying like his ways were were weak ways. Right. But once he got to a point of thoroughly understanding where Martin was coming from, due to his own personal transformation, it gave him a greater perspective. And I think that's what I got from the movie. It was like this, you gotta maintain an openness that allows you to like to, to understand everyone's sides, you right. know what I mean? Everyone's gripes or whatever, because like no one's right 100%, 100% of the time. Exactly. You know? Um, also, um, what also made me emotional about the film is that, quick question for you, have you ever been back to Vietnam at all? Yeah, a lot. A lot? Uh, well, relatively. I mean, in, in um, I try to go back every, you know, three to five years. So, so in, in the beauty of that, and then what I kind of envy, you know, not envy against, like, I hate you, Phil, nothing like that. No, no. Right, but it's just a, a point of, like, you have the ability to go back to where your family's from, right? That 100%, connection. 100%. Right. And um, I, 
I I am like Killmonger in a in a sense because you know we're we're trying to get back to where I started from, where my mm-hmm. family's from. Like I, you know, um, I'm gonna say maybe a year or two ago, my mom got like she bought because they were on sale. Like I'm like yo, it's a good deal. We're all getting these ancestry like dot com joints. Right. So she got them for me, you know, for herself, my dad, you know, and we all took it. And, you know, I'm seeing like, you know, nine percent is Irish, two percent Scandinavian, you know, some like two percent is like somewhere in Great Britain, whatever, and Asia Minor, right, you know, some province over there. And I'm saying a large majority of me, of course, is like it's from like West Africa, mm-hmm. South Africa, and maybe like the Congo, like but it's just, just along that just not just along the coast there. Right. And I said, Wow. Like I was, it blew me away a few years ago. And prior to that, I've always been like in the, in the, in the backseat of cabs, and I may have like West Indian, oh, West Indian, pardon me, West African um, like cab drivers. And they would say, hey, you from Nigeria? I'm like, no, your voice, you sound like it. Or, you know, I'm like, oh, wow, I was like, I'm from Nigeria, right? Walking around feeling that kind of pride. But right. I can't really say that because I, didn't, I don't have any direct ties to that. So I was talking to, I was working at a bank in 2014, and a bank not far from where we're recording right now, so like 12th and Walnut at the old city bank that was there. And the guy talks to me, he says, yeah, man, you know, uh, you should go to Nigeria or Benin or Togo or Ghana. If you go there, man, it's all gonna make sense for you. He's from there. Right, right. He told me it all make, it all make sense for me. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know. I mean, I knew what he meant, but I didn't under, truly understand what he meant by that. You know, like in terms mm-hmm. of like, what's what's really gonna make sense for me? Because I I sat there in a movie, I watched it twice. I'm getting I'm getting kind of emotional now about it. You know what I mean? So I hear you, man. You know, it's like because I'm sitting there in the theater, and I'm seeing Wakanda, this beautiful place in Africa, fictional place, mm-hmm. but beautiful nonetheless, you know, and you see the people there, you know, wearing clothing of all, of all like different African cultures there, you know, they're speaking Zoksa, I think it's called, like the South African dialect, and it's just beautiful to see that, because I rarely do I ever see, like, people that look like me, mm-hmm. like that on screen, you know, like, just unapologetically being black on screen. Right. And they are just there. And people were saying, like, the movie kind of shows what how Africa could have been if they weren't, like, you know, invaded and, you know, taken, you know, and the land being raped and, you know, colonized, colonized and, and all and enslaved, everything. Enslaved. Yeah. and all and all that. So you see this stuff of, like, what it could have been. So I'm going back to watch it the third time later on this week. Not just because I love the storyline, and I do love the storyline, but I just can't get enough of, of seeing something that I never know. Right. Like today, I went to the museum, the Penn Museum, and I walked around the um, the African uh, exhibits. Mm-hmm. 
you know, masks of all different places, you know, Adinkra Hene, like the Adinkra symbols, like the West Indian symbols, like, which I have tattooed on me because of that. For the same reason, which is kind of, which is kind of funny, for the same reason that Killmonger had all those scarifications on him, yeah. it's a representative, each kill that he got, which represents like an African culture, the scarification that happens there. I found myself placing like Adinkra uh, symbols on me different parts of my body because I wanted to have that connection to West Africa so bad. Yeah, you're trying I, to find home. Right. So that's, that's why I did it. And, you know, like I'm, I'm itching to visit West Africa or South Africa because I, I want to have, I want to know what it's like. Because, I, you know, people always say I can trace my family back to like, you know, uh, an English duke or... Mm-hmm. You know, someplace in Spain or anywhere in Europe, they can trace their family back to centuries and centuries and centuries. Somebody can probably trace themselves back to Charlemagne. Right. You know? And I can't do that. Right. I've tried with Ancestry.com. I first, the furthest I can go back is like 1850. Like, there is something that hurts for the fact that I can't, I can't do that. You know what right. I'm saying? Like it's a way, I, it's a way you can find a tribe. There's another one, African ancestry one, um, as it's directly for you to find what tribe you're part of, mm-hmm. you know. But I'm just sitting here and I'm wondering, like, what's there for me that I've, that I've been missing for so long? Like you said, it's always about trying, trying to find home. And as of late, you know, being in Trump's America. This feels less and less like home. Right. I'm getting constant reminders that, you know, even before, even when Barack was in office, you know, the, the police shootings were going on, that, like, I didn't, this didn't feel like home to me. Like, I didn't feel like I belonged here. Yeah, you know, I got family here. Yeah, you know, I can see hip-hop and someone wants to represent on TV. And, you know, I, I can basically be I can share in a black experience with people here but, well, but you're constantly reminded that you know you're, you're not welcome right I right mean, yeah so when I see films like Black Panther I'm like yo like I know I'll be welcome to a place like that right you know so it's it's a lot of stuff that happened man a lot of things that I felt and so I'll, I'll tell you this on the podcast I mentioned it earlier so after my second time seeing Black Panther, a few days had passed, and I s- decided to shed one thing, mm-hmm. the first thing. Um, again, my family, both sides of the family are, you know, the Southern black families. Mm-hmm. My grandparents are from, on both sides of the family, my mom's side, North Carolina, dad's side, Georgia and Virginia. So, you know, they've been like, they're like church going God-fearing people. And even up to this day, you know, I have my grandma for a while. She doesn't do it anymore. Was like, you should come to church. Why don't you come to church? I had an uncle, you know, who tried to um, have me saved. You know, he's like, yeah, I'm going to have you saved right now. I'm going to dunk you and baptize you. going to make you a part of this church. I talked to my dad about it later on. My dad was like, no, nah, that wouldn't happen. He said, no, nah, that was not what happened because he's not going to do that to you without us knowing. You know right. what I mean? But I decided not to, like, pretty much cut off my connection with Christianity. 
not in a way of being disrespectful towards anybody who is a Christian because you believe what you want to believe in. Right. And that's, you know, religious freedom is there. Right. But for me and my story and my life, where I'm going, I can't subscribe to it any longer. Right. Knowing, because you, know, you, watch, you watch Black Panther and you see them having their own belief system, you know what I mean, believing in the, the, the Panther de- deity, you know what I mean? Exactly, yeah, they, absolutely. They say glory, glory to Bast, right? Yep. They have their own thing going. And you, know, you have Yoruba, you have Ifa, you have different like belief systems that exist in Africa to this very day. Mm-hmm. You have things that have influenced like Santeria or, or voodoo and different things that come from African religions. Right. And, you know, I just feel like me being like subscribing to Christianity or being being like, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. It's like, for me personally, it, it doesn't feel right for me. Knowing that Christianity was like pushed upon people that looked like me as a way to civilize the savages. Absolutely. Or, you know, um, you know, I think um, a part of what you and I had discussed um, before we jumped on the podcast was this notion of the tie between religion and colonization, you know? Indeed. Yeah. Um, in terms of, you know, religion, in my humble opinion, you know, I, I might offend my connects, but it's all good. Religion is definitely used as a weapon. A weapon to brainwash people, to make people feel like, you know, their ways of understanding God, so to speak, wasn't the right way. Also, coming with that, like in terms of the missionaries that went to Africa, like, you know, um, even in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. There are these people who are who come to a, come over and think that yes, we're going to civilize the savages. Right. With a belief system that's presented to make a belief system in Vietnam or a belief system in Africa or whatever we brought over from Africa via the Middle Passage to America, you know, this thing is set up to make our beliefs seem like child's play, mm-hmm. make-believe. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, knowing what I know now about colonialism, knowing what I know about now about imperialism, knowing all these different things, again, how could I really still rather die with a religion that was used to like persecute people that looked like me, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, to control yeah, people sure. look like me. Because there was a scene um, I mentioned to you before we recorded, like, and I watched in Twelve Years the Slave, where the, you know the the master's wife and mistress, whatever name you want to go by, you know, was outside reading the Bible to all the slaves in the yard as a way to uh, civilize them, get them on the right track, right? You know, and 
using it as fear, like, if you don't believe in this, you're all going to hell for damnation. Mm-hmm. And uh, just imagine hearing that shit as, 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 a, as a child, you know? Five, six, seven years old, you being told, like, listen, if you don't believe in this, that so-and-so is your Lord, is, is your Lord and Savior, you're going to hell. Mm-hmm. The, f- the hell is that? Yeah, and I mean, you know, we, we, we again, we talked about this, right? It also wipes out your entire history, your entire ancestry. You know, I remember being, I, I think I was seven, maybe six or seven years old. And, you know, within the Vietnamese culture, within the way that, you know, we were brought up, uh, I was raised Mennonite. My godparents were Vietnamese. Um, you know, my, my godfather was a Vietnamese pastor. Um, and he, you know, became Mennonite um, through missionaries in, in Vietnam. And, you know, he had studied in France and things like that. But, um, you know, I, I was born into and raised as a, a Vietnamese Mennonite. Now, the thing was, was at six or seven, I realized this concept of heaven and hell. And if you didn't believe in Jesus Christ being the only path forward, um, there was no salvation for you. So I hit an existential moment at a very young age where I said, okay, uh, I have family in Vietnam that we call back every now and then. And back in the day, I mean, man, it's not like today where I can just pick up my cell phone and call a cell phone in Vietnam. You had to schedule time through mail. You mailed them a letter. They would, we would agree on a time, you know, and then you would set up uh, phone time where they would go to a place that had a phone and, and, and they could call you. And these small touches with my family in Vietnam, I was, I, I said to my mom, I was like, you mean to tell me that my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, my grandparents, their parents, my ancestors are all condemned to a life of an afterlife of misery and, 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 and pain because they didn't have an opportunity to, to learn about Jesus Christ. I was like, where's the compassion there? And so I rationalized it growing up and I said, you know, you know, God and Jesus may have a plan for them. I'm not religious today, um, but, you know, that stuck with me. Um, you, you had mentioned Black Panther where um, Chala goes back and, and sees his father and Eric goes back and sees his father. You know, uh, with, with our Vietnamese culture, uh, we, you know, obviously there's a lot of religions. Catholicism is a big part. Obviously I was raised Vietnamese Mennonite. Um, there's Buddhism, Taoism, the whole the whole gamut. But a, a core part of our, our our belief is this notion that there is a sense of your ancestors watching over you. Um, you know, even today in in my family's home in Vietnam, we have altars set up for my grandparents, right? And we have altars set up for 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 their parents. So there's a sense of connectivity and continuity with you and your elders, with you and and your ancestral family, um, which I feel more or less severed from today because, um, you know, I was raised Christian. Um, So in that sense, I think that that is a part of the colonization process. It's bringing in a religion that condemns you for not having known Christ beforehand. You, you savages, how did you not know? And we will save you. And upon saving you, you know, 
make you acquiesce. So Mennonites are pacifists. You don't resist. You don't fight. You don't push back. You believe that if you are um, holy enough, if you're forgiving enough, if you are, um, if you acquiesce enough, that you will find the way. And I think the 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 again turning back to the film, it portrays that in a sense, right? Where um, it it's something that both characters, both tragic heroes are able to go back and face their fathers and say, no, you didn't get it right, you know, um, which is, and it ties back to, to, to your notion of being able to tra- travel back to your roots. You don't, you don't have a Wakanda to go back to and say, yes, you know, this was the right way of doing things, or no, this isn't the right way of doing things. Um, and I think that's the power of film. I think that um, for the people who, and maybe this is just me, like I, mm-hmm. I, since I've seen the film, so many people have been like, oh, you know, yeah, it's a great film, but it, it didn't do enough. And, you know, these are white people telling me that the, they don't think that the film did enough. Jesus, man. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and my point is, is like, hey, we, we don't have a say. Obviously, I'm here on your podcast talking to you about it not being um, black, but... You know, I think um, people are missing the point in that the film offers up focal points for us to have these discussions about. You know, in Kung Fu, um, every teacher that gets put into the ceremony of Bai Si, Bai Si means that you, you've become a disciple, you inherit the art, uh, you get an altar, and the altar is called a sun toy. And the sun toy has, um, it's essentially an altar that has all of the names of the teachers before you. Um, and it, it, it is there to say that you are nothing without the teachers and the people that have come before you, right? And I think to just round it back, um, that aspect of our cultures, at least, at least I can say from, from my perspective, gets wiped out a little bit because um, Christianity was brought in as a part of the colonizing machine and in that wiped out our autonomy in the beliefs that we had in our own identities and in the spiritual uh, connection that we wanted to have based on our culture. So you know what? I usually like in podcasts on like with a finishing statement, right? Mm-hmm. As if the mission's completed. But with all that was said tonight about, you know, Kung Fu and, you know, understanding that in terms of your culture is a part of your identity. Mm-hmm. And me discussing, like, my connections to Black Panther, you know, and it's our different perspectives. I think the question I can use to end this podcast perfectly is who are we really mm-hmm. at our cores? I mean, besides us going, you know, besides us being males, human beings, besides us being 
people of color, human beings. And beyond being human beings, you know, you can say we're, we're like, we're souls or, or whatever, you know. But there is a quest that many of us have of finding out our true identities. Mm-hmm. What really makes us who we are, our stories and our experiences. So for me, having these moments, having these experiences of like being in Black Panther and seeing everybody coming in, you know, dressed in African wear and shirts, kente cloths and mm-hmm. dashikis and things like that and, and, and you know, traditional hair, you know, headpieces. Like, I love that people are trying to connect to an identity that they may not have had prior to this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's one of these things that I am constantly thinking about now is like, who am I? Where am I? What's my story? And people always talk about, um, have this old saying about, you never know where you're going unless you know where you've been. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, I, and I need to know where have I been? Right. And when I say I, I'm not just speaking for me personally. I don't, I don't know about the, my people's struggles. You know what I mean? Where, where have my people been? Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm talking about like I've known a lot, been taught a lot about civil rights, pre-civil rights, Jim Crow laws. We can talk about Southern Reconstruction. We can talk about the Civil War. We can talk about when the slaves first got here um, in 1619 in Jamestown in Virginia. Like, but before that, that's what that's something that I, I need to get back to to understand. Right. You know, so it's that it's that question. Like, who are we really? You know, I'm. I have. I have a standard American name. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a name that's accepted. In my my place of business, I have a name that people can pronounce, not give me a weird look like. How you pronounce this name again? Right. You know, I have a name. I have a life. I have everything that has been given to me and afforded to me because it's acceptable. My name's acceptable. Like, and Malcolm X, he didn't go by his last name Little anymore. He went by X because X Little was my slave name, right? Right. But I have, a, like, I have a name, but this name wouldn't be my name if I wasn't here. Right. You know, if I was over there, Whatever tribe I would be a part of, I would have that name because I would be part of that people. Right. And I, because I would be able to know exactly where I came from. I can trace it back. You know, I have a name now. I said the name is Michael, like of um, like of God, who is like God. But Michael is a Christian name. Right. You know. Yeah. So I, I have these things that are on me. That. I'll come to accept because it's like, here, this is what you got, and take it and run with it. You know, it's like your mom make you a brown paper bag lunch. You know, it's like you're hungry. They might not like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but it's what you got. Mm-hmm. You got to eat it, digest it, and roll with it. You know, so it's just, it's just one of those things, man, that I always think about. And I'm now more in touch with since the movie came out. Which is incredible, right? Because it's a mainstream film. Um, that has invoked so much thinking behind it. You know, I think 
the film has a lot of undue pressure, right? It, it has to exist in this capitalistic um, narrative that exists within the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know, it's obviously a part of, of Disney, so it has to have um, some function in this, in this greater uh, roadmap that they have. And nonetheless, it, it works towards um, representing, you know, like, like you said, representing you, it, it, allowing people to envision a world in which um, there, there are beginnings, there, there is an origin, and at the end, a way to move forward um, with all the tools at, at hand. I think the tough challenge for a film like that is that um, people then expect it to be everything. You know what I mean? Like in Hollywood and cinema today, uh, if you need a film to represent some aspect of um, uh, or some theme, you'll have it uh, as long as it's white normative, right? People talk a lot about like um, they, they try to push for the flaws of of T'Challa. Is, is he the hero uh, that people really need? You know, did he do enough? And I think, again, I think they missed the point because it's not just T'Challa by himself. It's everybody else that um, surrounds him, including Eric, that, that, that make him the hero that he needs to be. You know, I was, I was posited, and I know we're, we're wrapping up, but I know uh, an individual said to me, you know, did T'Challa do enough? Why didn't he arm his people? Why didn't he arm the rest of the world to fight back? And you don't see that type of pressure given to other superheroes. You got Batman, who's like wealthy as hell. And, and instead of using his resources to shift society, instead of using his resources to fight against white supremacy and capitalism and patriarchy, what does he do? He puts on a costume and he punches bad guys. Now, I love Batman. Me too. Right? Yeah. I love Batman. But, you know, in the beginning of, um, or with, with Batman Begins, you know, uh, he gets asked, he's like, I, f I forget her name, what's, what's the character's name, uh, Katie Holmes' character in the film, but she, she essentially asks Bruce Wayne, she's like, she takes him around Gotham and she's like, look at, look at this place, like, you can make a difference, right? And then at the end, you have Ra's al Ghul, um, or uh, not Raz Al Ghul, but is it Raz? Yeah, that point? was yeah, that was Raz because um, Raz was played by Liam Neeson, right? Okay, yeah. So Liam Neeson is like, yeah, I need to just tear everything down and destroy everybody so that we can rebuild this to be, you know, a place. It's it's disgusting right now. We we need to resist, and instead Batman takes him down, and everybody's like, oh man, that's amazing. You know, at the at the, the, the end of the third movie. Um, they position um, Bane as an anarchist who, who is trying to overthrow things for the people, but not really. And Batman takes him down. And no one questions Batman and says, like, could he have done more than just punch out the bad guy? But with Black Panther, he is asked that. There is more expected of him. Um, and obviously, from our perspective and from your perspective, for sure, because... There's so much weight put onto a single movie because nothing like that has been done before, right? Um, for 
and I think that 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 is absolutely worth looking into. And the film promotes that type of thinking and that type of inquiry. Um, but for everybody else out there, if you want a superhero that just like you know. Um, resists in the way that you want them to resist, uh, you have no skin in the game. And uh, ask your superheroes whether or not they can do more. You know, why aren't the Avengers going out there and, and you know, helping the, the Black Lives Matter movement? Why aren't the Avengers going out there and fighting against uh, classism and patriarchy? You know, why are you making the, the one film and the one hero who is a black man have to front all of that? And... Um, I don't know. I, I think it's a testament to how powerful the film is and how it has to do so many things for so many people because there isn't something like it on this scale and with this mainstream. You create, you said, man, listen, you made a great point because there was a double standard. In fact, when I look back at Black Panther, and you made this point earlier, for all those people who say, why didn't he do more? And, you know, Killmonger, you know, was actually the real hero. And I'm like, you have to understand, for those people who say that, who are not of our culture, right? Who don't live in the skin that we're in 24 7 really have no dog in this fight. Precisely. You're, you're asking something, you don't know what it's like to have to also survive. Right, because look, I work at, I'm not gonna tell you guys where I work, of course, but <laughs> I work at a place that's, that has a corporate aura there. And there are many days when I walk around that place where I work and I don't feel like I exist on the same level as other people. Mm -hmm. And people don't say things deliberately, but their actions do it. I walk past you in the hallway, you'll make eye contact. That no that that lets me know right there what time it is. You know, and I'm in a place where as much as I want to be like, listen, I feel this way. I feel that way. I want people to know, like, listen, I'm, I, you're being rude. Mm -hmm. Like, I exist. I'm standing right here. I'm holding the door open for you. You walk by as if, as if I'm supposed to do this. Right. You know? So there's different things that I feel, but I'm not in a position to where I'm like, oh, man, F this, F y'all. I can't do that because I have to survive. Yep. You know? It's like there's a, there's a, there's a shot. Um, it was a, a protest that went on. And I'm not sure whether it was in Baltimore or um, St. Louis or any city that had a crime, maybe, maybe New York after Eric Garner. You know, it's, it's such a shame. I have to name all these different locations. Of, of all across a, 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 our country. All across our country, right? But it was a scene. It was a black cop standing in front of protesters, mm -hmm. black protesters. And he's trying to keep them back from where it was going on behind him. And one of, the, one of the protesters asked him, how can you as a black man stand there, you know, while this is going on? 
And everybody's like, yeah, what kind of black man are you? As a policeman, you know, you part of the problem. And the guy says, listen, I'm here to protect, keep you guys safe from going back there and something happening to you. You know, have you guys been on the front page of something? So you have a guy who's there who I'm sure may feel something, uh, you know, feel a bit of anger about what happened to someone who looks like him. But at the same time, he has to do what? Survive. Just like the Wakandan general. Um, what's her name again? Okoye. Yeah. Like, same, sa- yes. same thing. And that's why the film is so powerful, man. Because they're all heroes. Eric, uh, T'Challa, Nakia. Like, they're all heroes. And for people who don't understand it and just want things to be simple, they're like, you know, why... Why didn't, why didn't T'Challa do enough? Why didn't Eric get to do enough? And I'm like, hold up. This is a story about them handling the complexities of their situation in a white supremacist world. Why aren't you doing enough? Why aren't your heroes doing enough? And when I say your heroes, like I love Captain America. He fights you know, in, in, um, in Winter Soldier. He fights against the government, but they never position it as him fighting against white supremacy. He's fighting against Hydra, so it's much easier. I had a friend of mine that said, you know, it's really disappointing, or he didn't say that it was disappointing, but he had a hard time not looking at the Star Wars films and seeing how it extols um, the notion of armed resistance, where Black Panther had none of that. And I said, man... It is easier for you to imagine yourself as a person fighting something as evil as the empire, right? You, you look at the empire and you can imagine the Nazis. And for most of us, I mean, in Trump's America, I think it's, it, it's a little bit harder, but like for most of us, we can look at Nazis and we're like, yeah, they're fucking evil, right? Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine yourself fighting that. But now you're expecting um, characters in Black Panther to do the heavy lifting that you're responsible for. You, wanna, you want Eric to arm himself and the, the Wakandans to arm themselves and put themselves on the line for something that you are responsible for. And that is, that is, that is it's hard for me to have that conversation with people. Now, Mike, when you're talking to me and you're like, hey, I feel Killmonger, like he is a product of his environment. He has this anger that I, I understand. Like, I totally get it. I'm with you on that. And I think that should be explored and and it's 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 people who are are trying to ask more of Eric Killmonger, and it's like, hey, why aren't your heroes doing stuff, right? Um, you know, that meme went around last year. It's like, yeah, see a Nazi, punch a Nazi. Okay, that's easy. That's easy because we all have a baseline of understanding that Nazis are evil. But if I were to say, you know. Um, and this podcast is going to get me so much flack. But, like, if I were to say, see a cop, punch a cop, would you do it? Hell no. Right. You, you wouldn't do it because it's not black or white. It's, there's so much more um, on it for us. Right? And, and, and you're talking about the, the, the black cop. That man has a family he wants to go home to. He has a life he needs, he needs to preserve, and he's also trying to do the right thing. 
And so that's all wound up in this complexity. And it's not just a matter of, hey, I'm going to go punch this evil thing. It'd be easy if we could just point at it and be like, yeah, let's just, let's just get it out of the way. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that even though in Black Panther you don't have, it, it, it is these individuals, these Wakandans, like defining their own destiny, they have to define it within a world in which white supremacy reigns. And it causes all of them to examine their own personalities and examine their own values. And that's, like you said, not, ev- not everybody has that same skin in the game. No one. The one thing I will touch on. Um, so, so remember when, like, the Nazi did get punched on TV, right? Yeah. They was like, yeah. You said, see a Nazi, punch a Nazi. Punch a Nazi. Do you know why I side with you on that? The reason why I side with you on that is this. Say if I did do that, like, people are unpredictable. Human nature isn't predictable. So I would not want anyone to pay for my vengeance. Mm-hmm. This is what I mean by that. Say if I did punch somebody in the face, right? Me being a black man, punch him in the face, he's mad at black folks, right? Then he sees another black, black dude walking by, minding his own business. He decides to take his anger out on what, after what I did to him. Mm-hmm. Onto somebody else. Absolutely. That's why I'm like, violence is, it's a nasty cycle. Absolutely. But, I completely agree. And it doesn't flow in the way that you think. It's like, oh yeah, you might do something to him, bring it back to you. No. Because you've seen it happen. Yep. You've seen like these people, like the dude, the, um, the shooter in, in Florida, right? Mm-hmm. People were talking about, oh, like, you know, he's an orphan kid or, like, uh, an ex-girlfriend or different, these different, like, theories and, and other types of shit that, he, that supposedly set him off, right? And what did he do with that? That anger. He didn't take it out on people closest to him. No. He took the lives of 17 um, high schoolers, children. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, that, this is why, like, for me... I, I just have a different perspective about this entire thing. Totally, and I'm with you. So the the, the argument with the, the Florida shooting, right? Mm-hmm. So what do we do there? Do we take Eric Killmonger's perspective and we just arm the teachers and arm the students and say that whenever something bad happens, they fight back? Do we say there's nothing we can do about it and we should just shelter ourselves? Or do we find some kind of middle ground that expands upon that in a more complicated and nuanced way, right? Um, I'm, I'm of the, the, the third option. Um, I think people don't understand what violence actually is. Mm-hmm. I, don't under, I don't think people understand the cost of violence and that's not to say that th- that resistance through violent means isn't uh, an option. You know, like even in the United States, that's how they got, you know, we got our independence from the British. That's how, you know, um, a lot of um, independence occurs. Um, but being a child of a family that had to escape a war-torn country um, 
war and violence is not glamorous. And violence is one, but one tool that is used to change and shape culture and society. And I don't think that it should be the default option. You know, in Juklam, there's a saying, um, hand to hand, heart to heart. If you don't come, I don't start. But if you do, I will go through you until you see red. And the idea behind that is Kung Fu is not designed to say that violence is the first option. It is designed to say that it is an option amongst a myriad of sophisticated options. You know, and, and to what you're saying with, you know, you don't want to enact violence because you don't want that to have ramifications in a broad scale for you. Here's the thing, man. Wakanda, the fact that Wakanda exists is an act of resistance. The fact that it has not been touched is an act of resistance. And what Killmonger is saying is, hey, there's more that we can do because there are people that are suffering. You know, um, but people that are, that, are, that are saying that, and again, I think it's typically, you know, this white male fantasy of violence where it's like Wakanda didn't do enough. Well, you know what? Move. Wanted to create a community just for themselves. And just for existing, what happened? Philadelphia bombed them. Twice. First, first time, first house. They got uh, flooded out their house. Yeah. Um, and a, a cop was shot. I'm not sure if a cop was killed or not. And they blamed one of the move members. members but from what I heard, it actually could have been an act of friendly fire. Right. 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 Then you fast forward, it's 1985. And they, not only did they bomb, firebomb them, they destroy an entire neighborhood. Right. And that's for existing and potentially resisting. So you have these people that want to fantasize about and, and, and doesn't think that Black Panther does enough. Black Panther has, is representing all of these different facets outside of the perspective of the dominant white gaze. And you're saying it's not enough. I don't buy it. We have examples of societies that exist today that are com- constantly infiltrated and, and destroyed for, for attempting to garner some sort of strength and, and existence. You know, again, I said, you know, Henry, Henry Kissinger um, ordered the assassination on Ngoi Yim in Vietnam. Um, Move is another example. You have... Um, you know, the Trail of Tears. People assume that the Trail of Tears was just some, some, some sort of negotiation where we decided as the United States to move uh, natives to another part. No. No. Settlers were like, hey, we want more of this land and these people are living here. Uh, yeah, let's, let's move them. I mean, that's some dark shit. And so just existing and existing... Um, with our well-being in mind, is an act of resistance. You know, can we can we push it more? Absolutely, and, and we need to. Um, but you know, I think in terms of the film itself, it poses these questions. It poses this this dialogue, and um, 
a part, I guess, of the burden of being this film is that it has to represent more than just itself, a as we do, as people of color, as minorities, as women, as women of color, as um, you know, the African American African American community, as blacks, you know, we, we as natives, we, we the burden of doing more is always on us. Because it's like when kids were. Um some black children that are told like listen you gotta work twice as hard twice as smart Absolutely, twice man. as fast so like you can keep up or be on the same tier as them you know yeah. tier as other people who aren't of color yep. yeah man I just uh, it's, a, it's a process for all of us I'll tell you one thing I want native people indigenous people I want them to have a black panther moment in cinema, I want other people, other peoples of color, to have a Black Panther moment in cinema, where their people, people who look like them, in massive amounts, have a film that speaks out to them. You know, but I think that's the good thing about Black Panther, like what it does. People say it's not doing enough. It did just enough because it sparked a lot of thought and tons of people right you know and it was powerful enough where it was you know there there's a notion again the hong kong cinema it's a little insular right you watch like i watch these like chinese heroes taking on imperialism and colonialism but it's still in a vacuum it's insular i see it people like me see it and it's empowering it's empowering you know you didn't have that it's empowering however uh the beauty of Black Panther is that it is large enough where people that are not black also have to take notice. Right? And uh, I absolutely agree. And I think, again, it's the power of the film to extend beyond itself because I, I watched it, I teared up, and I was like, yeah, this this may not be directly associated to my culture um, but I'm seeing how it's challenging this idea of otherness and people have to take notice and that, that is a powerful thing so here's the thing right like because no we can go on for hours and I know, hours I know, right? I know. but there's one thing I want to I say to you before um, we cut off and I guess it's fortuitous actually because that you're here you mentioned Vietnam Today, I watched, uh, it was actually this morning, an episode of Anthony Bourdain's, what was it called? Is it like Lost? Not Lost. It's not um, No Reservations. It's the last series. Mm -hmm. He has, uh, I guess I got something about him being traveling all over the world. You know, he'll, he'll go to Senegal, eat a sandwich. Right. You know what I mean? I'm like, <laughs> damn, man. He's like, he's just living the life. Right. So he went to um, Hanoi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he loves Vietnam. He loves Vietnam. Yeah. And he interviewed a woman who is a tourist. Not tourist. She is she's a tour guide. And he says that whenever people are given tours there, like they are always being brought to like what is that the American War Museum? Uh huh. 
Does there yeah. like there always there's people? one there, there's one in Ho Chi Minh City, you know, mm-hmm. Saigon, yeah. So like they they go to these places and they and they see like the tanks or different things that are around that I guess they're supposed to signify, you know, the good that was done, mm-hmm. you know, in in Vietnam. And he asked her, Anthony Bourdain asked the tour guy, he says, uh, you think there'll ever be a time when you won't have to visit that place in terms of like letting let the past be the past and it's going beyond that? And she was brought to tears. You know, because I guess like still having to deal with those ghosts. Mm-hmm. You know, like in your own country, you have constant reminders. Like a, a museum is pretty much a memorial of a terrible event. Mm-hmm. An event that we, as Americans, should never got involved in in the first place. You know, and just to have that there is like these tourists come by, oh, you know, marveling over over, over weapons of, the, of destruction mm-hmm. in a country that's tried incredibly hard to move on from that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, it's just these, these things, these, these, like these figurines of like colonialism, imperialism, of war that people are forever scarred with. You know, like even, you mentioned how your family had, had to escape a war-torn, a war-torn country. Mm-hmm. Then I'm watching like Black Panther and like people growing up like my the kid Eric as a child in Oakland, mm-hmm. growing up in like, you know, the hood, you know, and like, and the hood can can be a war torn area. Yes, you know, and and that's, and that's what we call home. Right, and but instead of having like a museum, you know, of war there, you're constantly reminded of abandoned homes and the news and. All types, of, all types of nonsense in the media that stands as remor- uh, as as a uh, constant reminder that you you're living in a danger zone. Right. You know, no matter how much you think you're getting away from it, you always get these reminders. Of yep. It, you know, but that's so so so. How do we stop it? You know, and I think um, to wrap this up, I think that's what Black Panther asks us. You know. Um, what steps can we take? And there are different lenses and they're all complex, but in what ways can we move towards a world where we diminish and hopefully someday vanquish these worn, torn notions and existences for marginalized people? What can we do? I wish that was an answer that I can think of like right now, but it's going to take time. No, nah, man, it's going to take time. Yes, indeed. Well, Phil, thank you for being a guest on uh, 1984 Fly Die Podcast, episode 20. I am honored. Thank you. Man, this is definitely food for thought. All mm-hmm. right, everybody, thanks for listening, and catch you next week. Peace. Peace.
You win!